0: Listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Catherine Cruz. On the brink of war in Europe, sanctions are piling up against Russia for invading Ukraine. Many are hopeful talks will change the unfolding path, including those with ties to Ukraine who served with the Peace Corps. Carolyn McKenzie is president of the group Returned Peace Corps Volunteers of Hawaii. The region she worked in, Ukraine, is said to be under Russian control, and the escalating violence has flooded her with memories of her time there during a week when we start when we marked the start of John F. Kennedy's Peace Corps program aimed at a deep cultural and political exchange. We talked to Mackenzie yesterday afternoon on the 61st anniversary of the signing of the Peace Corps Act designed to promote friendship and peace.
1: Flooded with memories, Catherine. Absolutely sick. It's disgusting. It's sad because my network of friends, I was in group 38, 2010 to 2012, so we were just before Putin made his first move. Today is like Mardi Gras, and in the Orthodox Church, which would be two weeks from now, they would start their Mardi Gras, eat up all their flour, all their eggs, everything, have a huge party to start Lent fasting almost as a vegan. And I, being a Catholic, we had a great time talking about various Lent, customs, etc., and I have those pictures. It's this time of year, they come back, and I see my friends, I see my cooking club, and they have no home now. Luhansk has been taken, most of them have left, where are they? And it's just, it's just so sad, because they're normal people, they're peace-loving, wonderful people
0: and their lives have just been turned upside down.
1: Absolutely turned upside down. We ran an English club which was a fun thing in the library and it was part of the it's a part of a US Department State Department USAID program where every library in major cities had a room dedicated for English speaking books on America, how you could come to school, how you could go to college, how to learn to do an LSAT how to maybe learn and try and come to the United States. So we would always have our English club in this room and it was not a grammar class, this was conversation and the topics were across the board. And so when you realize that the library was bombed, it's gone, we saw pictures of that in 2016, my good friends that were electrical engineering professors that came to English Club to practice their English, they're gone. They've had to move to Poland. They've had to evacuate. It's, and it's for no reason. It's for absolutely no reason.
0: So as you watch these images on TV, and I just saw one where they bombed a radio station antenna. The radio antenna. tower, yes, mm-hmm. in
1: Kiev. And that's next to a monument dedicated To the famine, the Holodmir, where way back in 1932, Stalin uh, had an enforced famine, and 32 million Ukrainians were starved because Stalin needed their wheat, and I think the thing, if I can just digress two seconds, the blessing that Peace Corps gives all of us is that we learn about a country, and one of our goals as a return volunteer is to Tell the world and our neighborhood and our friends where we were and what it was like where we served. So it's very poignant right now that most of us who served in Ukraine can step up to the plate and say this is so senseless because it's a lovely country and the monument to the famine and the radio tower a cave, Those are those are senseless. There's no military involved. There's no bomb shelter. It's it, it's un- I don't understand.
0: Yeah, so it, it's kind of heart-wrenching.
1: It is. And the thing we learned, this is something of interest, the metro, the Kiev metro has some of the longest escalators going down to take the metro trains. And it was fascinating because one day I timed how long the escalator took, and it was two iTunes songs down to the bottom to get on the train. And that is they were built as the bomb shelters for World War II. And sadly, that's where they're back in action, saving lives right now.
0: So they're back in use as bomb shelters.
1: Back in use as bomb shelters, yes.
0: So you're looking at these images, you're thinking about your time there and the future of the Peace Corps.
1: Right. Well, the blessing right now is if Congress passes the Reauthorization Act, we understand that April 2020, so coming up very soon, there will be uh, Peace Corps volunteers going back into the field. And a lot of them are the response volunteers, short-term, helping with COVID and helping with health care. But as we understand it, the Peace Corps is going back into the field, which is excellent
0: news. Right, but you've just got to get the funding piece in place.
1: <laughs> we got to get the funding pieces right. So that's that's, um, that's just having—this is one easy issue for Congress to compromise on. It's just so easy. It's the best use of American
0: taxpayer dollars going. I don't imagine that the Peace Corps volunteers will be going into Ukraine at this point.
1: Oh, no. And, you know, after after the uprising in 2014— Um, My area, the Donbas region that was taken by and the area in Crimea where there were lots of Peace Corps volunteers, they were all brought home. And when it seemed safe, Peace Corps volunteers returned to Ukraine and they stayed on the western side over Lviv side, ivano Frankovich side, uh, the Romanian border, the Hungarian border, mostly as teachers of English. And that's what they did until the virus brought everybody home. So Peace Corps has been in Ukraine since it's um, early 1991 when it became an independent country. And for those that are listening who would like to learn more about the history of Ukraine, one of the best books we read in training was called Borderland Land by Anna Reed. And it's the history of all the different conquering Peoples or empires that came through Ukraine: Holy Roman Empire, Austria-Hungarians, Lithuanians, the Poles. Catherine the Great came over in the 1700s and started colonizing the cities on the Dnieper River going down. She founded the, she found her warm water port in Simferopol, which is Crimea. So, for 1991, that's the first time that Ukraine had ever governed. Itself. So it's a very new, young country. Today is uh, Kennedy's announcement where it was authorized for the first time in 1961. And they went, and the first group of volunteers went over. And as you know, many of the early volunteers trained on the Big Island, those volunteers that were going to the South Pacific and the Southeast Asian regions. So, Peace Corps in Hawaii has a big connection. We are thankful that all our congressional reps love the Peace Corps. And I'm also thankful to the broadcast news, PBS, and Star Advertiser, because they like us too. There are many of us that served in Ukraine, starting with the group in 1991, Group 1. And we have a Facebook page called RPCV Alliance for Ukraine. And they have been active in finding information, finding out trustworthy news sources, so that if anyone who is listening is interested in finding out what's happening, it's a, it's a Facebook page, and there are also the Kiev Independent, which is an independent newspaper, is a real time information. And then one of the volunteers that was in our group, Chris Miller, has been a reporter uh, and taught English and newspaper writing to his, his group in Ukraine. He now is in Ukraine, and you can Google Chris Miller. He's another real-time, what's happening, totally honest, upfront, tells it like it is reporter.
0: So you're just but, trying to identify uh, good resources for good information?
1: Absolutely, absolutely mainly because the disinformation campaign that is out there is so sad as well. This is a country that's wonderful people. They are peace-loving. They, they have the world's best gardens. Way back when I was a child, we had a lot of Ukrainians in our town in Pennsylvania, and I learned all about Pisanki, the lovely Easter eggs, the wax eggs, and we also, it was just, Now I have actually learned how to do the wax eggs, and I have met the nuns that make them. So it makes the sadness of the story so real that their customs and their culture are under attack.
0: Yeah, and you wonder what Easter will be like uh, for that community there in that country.
1: Absolutely, because it's a very high, holy, religious holiday. It is... I mean, they'd all go through their 40 days of fasting. They're almost vegans. And then you go to church at 4 o'clock in the morning as the sun rises, and I went with my families, and you take your basket of foods that you're now allowed to eat, your salamis, your eggs, your fun things, and even a bottle of vodka, and the patriarch blesses everything and pours holy water on everyone as the sun comes up. And then you go home, and it's now Easter, and you eat absolutely everything at four thirty in the morning, and go back to bed. <laughs> it, was, it was a wonderful. It was like, oh, we should try this more often.
0: Bittersweet memories for you, though, during this time.
1: Totally, totally, absolutely.
0: Well, we'll keep everybody in our thoughts as we see where this goes. But thank you so much.
1: Oh no, thanks for thanks for asking me to talk. Um, If anyone needs more information, rpcvhi.org, they can always find me and ask questions through our Peace Corps website here in Hawaii. And then there's on Facebook, RPCV Alliance for Ukraine.
0: That was Caroline McKenzie, president of Returned Peace Corps Workers of Hawaii, talking to us about the situation in Ukraine where she last served in 2012 in a town near the Russian border. Малым собирался на весне, и
2: ты у света, не знали мы шлятами
0: It is day two of a four-day hearing before the Public Utilities Commission on the fate of a biomass plant on the Big Island.
3: HBR's Kuvehiri she has been tracking the project and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, day two of the Hawaii Public Utilities Commission's evidentiary hearing on the Honua Ola, or Hu Honua bioenergy plant there in Pepe'e on the Big Island. And this morning kicked off uh, with Hu Honua's attorneys grilling Hawaiian electric over exactly how much money ratepayers or residents will be saving if and should this uh, biomass plant go online, and so how much money ratepayers uh, will actually save on their electricity bill is uh, sort of one of the fundamental questions to be answered throughout this four-day hearing. And uh, Huonua argues the price hasn't changed since the initial start of conversations, and at the time it was a dollar and sixty-two cents a month uh, that uh, ratepayers would be saving. Hawaiian Electric argues, you know, we didn't agree to that set price. There are other factors uh, to consider, such as the rise in oil prices and uh, this idea of dispatching. So the yet-to-be-set amount of kilowatt hours the utility is actually going to allow um, to to plug into the grid on. And so that idea of, of dispatch, right, the more the utility can dispatch, the lower the prices because you have renewable energy uh, instead of, of oil. Uh, but Rebecca Deha of matsushima she's in charge of um, procuring renewable energy for Hawaiian Electric. Uh, she told the PUC yesterday that the utility sort of has a policy of dispatching fossil fuels ahead of renewables uh, for economic reasons. We try to
0: optimize our system so that we are making use of our renewables, but we also want to ensure that we're not increasing customer bills more than is necessary and that our customers aren't seeing significant increases to their bill. Um, so there's a delicate balance, in my opinion, of as we're moving towards 100% renewable energy, also ensuring that we're not overburdening our customers to take on that responsibility as we transition. And um, there may be instances where a firm generator is operating at its minimum and a renewable firm generator is operating at its minimum and a fossil fuel is
3: being dispatched more um, for economic reasons. So this idea over how much of the energy from Huonua will be sent into the grid is part of what's still being figured out. Uh, According to the utility, a lot of what... Who Honua's plans have uh, the plans that have been in place haven't had detailed sort of. Um, it doesn't give them a detailed idea of exactly how uh, firm and reliable their energy source is going to be. So they really can't say. They really sure. can't. Well, that's part of what we're yeah. going to be hearing over the next mm-hmm. couple of days. Uh, sort of opponents of the project have been waiting for information, data uh, from Hu Honua that hasn't been uh, provided to kind of explain out these these uh, the reasoning behind some of what they're doing. Now, the second question, uh, and Sort of the biggest reason why we're still reconsidering this this plant, we should say back uh, in 2017 that the PUC initially did approve uh, the PPA power purchase agreement to allow Huonua uh, to sell. Um, energy to the utility, but that was challenged uh, in part by Henry Curtis and folks over at Life of the Land, based on the idea that uh, in considering this project, there was no uh, debate or or information on the impact it would have to the state's goal of hitting renewable energy 100 uh, percent by 2045. And so, a lot of what's going on now is that second question is answering whether uh, you know burning wood is really going to. Reduce reduce overall greenhouse right. gas emissions. And, and we should
0: probably mention that you know, this was an old sugar plant mm-hmm. and been transformed. The idea is that it would burn invasive trees, right? Right. Uh, Eucalyptus, albizia, mm-hmm.
3: strawberry guava, or viv So there are benefits and they are being put out there by Honua. But folks such as Henry Curtis with Life of the Land has said, you know, it takes a while for if you're going to replant trees to offset the amount of carbon that's being emitted by the the trees that you're burning, it's going to take 20 to 22 years to even see that come to fruition. And so all of those factors, all of those arguments are being taken into consideration this week by the PUC. So we are still on ratepayer savings today. I think the commission is hoping to move on to the greenhouse gas emissions arguments over the next two days. And according to Honuola president, in terms of timeline, Warren Lee says if the project is approved, by the PUC by mid-year. The biomass plant could be up and running by the end of the year.
0: Yeah, and I know that PUC had ordered them to kind of speed things up, and they did, right?
3: Yes, on the initial approval by the PUC, they were given 18 months to finish, you know, as much as you can. They're now at 99% built out. They're at Honuola. But then this challenge came about, litigation ensued, and so we're here now.
0: Right, and I know that, and the concern is they have former sugar workers that they were hoping to put back to work at this plant. And so that's a big question mark, too.
3: Jobs, yeah, are a big push on the sort of people supporting this project. Uh, but really doing it right, it seems to be what the PUC wants to do with this four-day hearing.
0: Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, I know the consumer advocate has raised questions about this. So certainly something to uh, consider. And we'll see when the PUC makes its decision. Yes. Thanks so much. We have been hearing from HPR's Kuvehi Hiraishi, who is tracking this hearing before the Public Utilities Commission this week.
4: Support for H.P.R. comes from Ron Artiste II, performing songs from his new album, Purpose, with guests Eric Gales, Dan Leibowitz, and Clinton Firon, April 30th at Hawaii Theatre. Tickets at HawaiiTheater.com. If
0: Hawaii Public Radio's mission of community service resonates with you, and if you're a service-minded self-starter with an eye for detail and a facility with databases... Our full-time membership coordinator position may be just the job you're looking for. Find out more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org and let us hear from you.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibit Treasures of Devotion, Human Connection in Secular and Sacred Art, featuring works from the museum's permanent collection. Honolulumuseum.org.
0: Decision that many have waited for—the lifting of the mandatory vaccine restrictions for travelers coming into Hawaii—that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu beat reporter Joel Dow uh, joins us today. Good morning, Joel.
2: Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So uh, big deal. Uh, you know, all the yes. mayors were there at that news conference. The governor.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All four mayors and the governor. It seems like all of Hawaii's COVID restrictions, except for the big one, the mask mandate, are Mm -hmm. dropping like flies.
0: Yes. And so uh, I I know that shortly after the uh, news conference, uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority sent out a big blast letting the world know that, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, all this will not be required, the long lines to show your vaccine cards.
2: Yes. For for domestic travelers, Mm -hmm. uh, international travelers are still subject to uh, vaccine requirements for non-U.S. residents, and then U.S. residents coming from international places still need to prove uh, a recent COVID test or recovery from a COVID infection. But yeah, domestic travel is opening back up for Hawaii.
0: Yeah, and we've got spring break uh, down the way, and so I know they're they're wondering if uh, folks are going to be uh, anxious to uh, you know add travel to their uh, plans.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, travel has already been uh, rising since uh, it fell dramatically during COVID. I mean, they were, I think, if I remember correctly, they were logging like 20,000 travelers uh, as Omicron was kind of fading away. And they expect another 6,000 a day. So like something like 26,000 travelers, if I remember correctly, uh, at the height. Um, so we 're returning to um, big travel numbers, which is great for our hotel industry and hospitality industry
0: yes, and it 's kind of a one two punch because all the counties uh, you know have announced that they are ending or have ended uh, the uh, safe access to all the restaurants and gyms and places yeah. like yeah
2: mm-hmm. one after another I mean you know Maui only Maui and Oahu. Uh, city and county of Honolulu had such a vaccine mandate to enter, you know, dining indoors or enter gyms or bowling alleys or other things like that. Um Kauai and uh the big island never instituted such mandates. But yep, Maui ended theirs February twenty first, so last week, and oh Honolulu is ending theirs uh on Sunday. So midnight Saturday, Sunday.
0: And so uh as far as the uh like the biggie that you mentioned, the indoor mask wearing. Uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people expected that Ige would finally, um, you know, roll back uh, Hawaii's indoor mask mandate when the CDC changed their guidance, which they did last Friday. The CDC updated uh, their guidance saying that Um, 70% of Americans, so Americans living in medium and low risk areas, uh, would, uh, I I don't want to say are no longer recommended, uh, but they are easing their masking guidance for the 70% of Americans, which includes all of Hawaii. Um, So a lot of people did expect you know, Ige to roll back Hawaii's mask mandate. But Ige said that they aren't yet. And we're at least having the mask mandate until March 25th, And they will continue evaluating and maybe they will extend maybe they won't they haven't said.
0: And you know, the governor said that we are not done with COVID-19. He underscored that. Uh, And I guess it just depends on people's comfort levels. You know. And-
2: yeah, yeah. I mean a lot of people have been commenting. Like yesterday Blangiarty, uh Mayor Blangiardi of Honolulu said that he noticed that so many people were still wearing uh the masks outdoors even though we haven't had an outdoor mask mandate for months. Um so yeah, a lot of people do expect uh a lot of people in Hawaii are very amenable to wearing masks. Um it's a different a different issue in Hawaii than much of the other places in the U.S. where, you know, mask wearing became a very political issue. Um, but yeah, in Hawaii, there seems to be very a very significant amount of support for mask wearing, whether or not it's actually mandated by the government.
0: And what did the governor say about reopening uh, government offices and, and access again?
2: Mm-hmm. hmm So government offices, well, the current Hawaii uh, State Emergency Proclamation is slated to end March 25th. So by then, Ige did announce yesterday that uh, government offices will be reopening. Um, he'd be ending the vaccine or test mandate to enter state, fac- state facilities, um, and he's also ending the vaccine mandate for state and county employees. So yep, state offices will be reopening. Um, Still not sure about telework policies. He said that they would continue to evaluate those for state workers. But I anticipate that, you know, generally we'll be seeing a reopening of in-person state facilities.
0: Well, I was happy to see that the state libraries are are, going to be open for business. So that's awesome.
2: Yes, finally. I I am a big fan of the libraries. (laughs) My parents used to drop me off at the library just for a whole day during breaks when I was younger.
0: Yes, love those libraries. Well, thanks so much, Joel.
2: Yes, thanks for having me again. And, you know, all these COVID rules have been dropping so rapidly. So I'm still trying to, we're all trying to keep up with them.
0: All right. But I'm still going to hang on to my card just in case anybody asks.
2: (laughs) Oh, me too. Me as well.
0: All right. Thanks so much. We've been talking with reporter Joel Lau with today's Reality Check. To read his stories on this issue, visit silverbeat.org. President Biden's nomination of the first Black woman to the nation's highest court is the subject of our segment, "The Long View." Our political analyst Neil Milner sets the stage for what's to come. Good morning. Good morning. So yeah, big news when this happened. He it was a campaign promise.
5: Yep, it was a campaign promise. And what I decided to do for today is to look at the context a little bit more. Because one of my favorite research organizations, the, P- the Pew Foundation Survey Operation, polls regularly on uh, public perceptions on the Supreme Court and on various other kinds of things about not polling, but how long it usually takes for um, an appointment to be confirmed and, and whatever else. So here's the context. And uh, the context is that in the perception of the public, the the approval of the court has dropped. Um, it's not as highly esteemed as it used to be. The drop is much more among Democrats and Republicans, but it's dropped. In the context of public institutions, it does a whole lot better than Congress, who which Congress's approval polls is somewhere down there with the Soviet Army. Um, but so that's one thing. The second thing is there seems to be an overall agreement that the court has become more ideological but the, the the agreement like a lot of other agreements when you look at polarization now is is different right now democrats are more likely to think that the court has become more ideological than republicans are not a surprise because one person's ideology is another person's objectivity especially in the world we live in so that, that's a that's another factor there and those things i think Are very important to all of this because there is this constant fight and it's an important fight and we'll get back to it in a second about whether judges make law or should decide politically it's a false dichotomy and we'll get to that in a second but one of the reasons that it's so salient now and so important now is because that's the way we tend to think about politics we're polarized along those lines so the other, the other thing I would add about a fact, just so you understand, is that it's for long periods of time, appointments were very made very quickly. They were confirmed very quickly by the Senate. There wasn't fights on one side or the other. They often got very high uh, approval, uh, uh, you know, close to unanimous, starting with Earl Warren in the 50s, but really accelerating uh, in the 80s appointments now, as you've all seen take much longer or they don't even get a vote at all as what happened with uh, the Obama appointment. So we don't know. This one seems to be moving. If there's any candidate that it's hard for the other side to resist, it's probably Brown Jackson because she's been approved twice for justices. She has a lot for judgeships, federal judgeships. She's got a lot. She has a, a terrific reputation but we 'll still see whether they 're going to we 're going to do something else, so that 's the context that 's where we that 's what what 's going to happen. We know if she is approved, the court is still roughly a six to three conservative majority. yeah, they split on some issues, but you can easily divide them that way. I guess I should say it because I promised the one other thing about we know from all kinds of researchers that judges' political values do affect their decisions that's not saying quite the same thing as partisanship determines all i mean that's we we've known a lot about how judges operate that's that's a consideration people wouldn't be presidents wouldn't be so concerned about whom they appointed if they if there wasn't some of that the real question is how that melts with other norms about uh, started the thesis and about objectivity. And it seems as if, well, we know for sure there's much more concern about that and much more difference about that now than there has been.
0: Well, you know, I just was pausing to think about some of the controversial appointments, you know, going back to, to Bork, yeah. uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, you know, and then the, the, the last two under Trump, you know, I mean, those got kind of nasty. Oh, sure.
5: Well, and then the non-appointment. I Mm -hmm. mean, that's about as nasty as you can get, not even where where Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell wouldn't even bring it to the Senate. You see how the norms have really changed in in lots of ways for the worse. It's very hard to have a kind of consensus or notion, or maybe it's a myth, on uh, courts being above the law when you see this kind of nakedly partisanship going on but uh, let me just remind everybody the idea that courts are above the law is not true and it's 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 an abstraction they're different and and as i say it's you know it's not like being on in congress but the they're right in there uh,
0: and so, gosh! So this latest appointment, then you think it's going to be a little bit harder for them to to block this one?
5: I, uh, you never. You never my, know. <laughs> my notion about Congress is that one, I don't like to predict, and if I do predict, it's always for the worst. I mean, I'm really, not, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm really pretty skeptical about getting anything done. Ston- you haven't heard much uh, objection yet. Um, the hearing is supposed to happen pretty soon. Uh, the Republicans certainly haven't tried to block it the way. I mean, going forward with a, an appointment at all, you don't hear any of that. So, in that sense, it may go forward, but it'll still be, I would guess, a fairly long set of of hearings. What candidates do is they visit key senators to kind of get in touch and so on. And again, because she's done this before, they know her. She's worked in Washington as an appellate court judge. But that's the stage that you're, that you're at now.
0: Yeah, and I said just, you know, looking back uh, to, let's say, Clarence Thomas at that time, and, and that was – Oh, that was awful. Oh, off. my gosh. Oh, yeah. yeah.
5: That was – um and, and the Clarence Thomas one, because the – it was even nastier than just an ideological fight when when Bork i mean a lot of the really serious long and and refusal to appoint someone started with the Liberals' response to Robert Bork, who was a very outspoken. Conservative. I mean, you know, he was a law professor, so he'd be writing about this stuff all the time. Well, that's not the way you can, you know, you can't then make up these things about. Well, I'll be objective when you have very strong views. Since then, it's gotten it's gotten more. The Clarence Thomas one was so fraught about about sexual harassment and so nasty, and still very much affects. Thomas and possibly the way that he thinks about the the, the court, that, that that was almost in a classification by itself. The Kavanaugh one involving sexual harassment, but by then the sides were so much clearer. There was a fair amount of bipartisanship involved when Clarence Thomas was there. There's no bipartisanship to speak of at all in the context of when Kavanaugh goes.
0: Well, uh, I have to say that the Supreme Court is on my mind because every time I drive home, there's a neighbor who has a huge memorial to Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg. Still has it up. Yes, still has it up. Lights and flowers and everything. Interesting. Well,
5: you also may remember the old uh, Impeach Warren signs. You know when the, there were a whole lot of people who wanted to impeach Earl Warren, which is no, which is of course extraordinarily hard to do because of his liberal decisions and particularly on the court's movement into the civil rights protections much more than anybody else.
0: Yeah, so I guess we'll see how this plays out.
5: Yeah, I mean one thing that people should watch is the career of Clarence Thomas because he's become. Uh, A much more articulate and important person on the hard right side of the court, for one. And also, he and his wife have uh, political connections that are very different from what the court has seen before in a situation where court ethics are pretty open-ended for the Supreme Court. And it's going to be interesting to watch how he emerges in all this.
0: Yeah, and see what happens to all these landmark cases. But thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. We have been talking with our political analyst and contributing editor, Neil Milner.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance. Committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. In the Dominican Republic, sugarcane cutters live in dire conditions.
0: When you think of the money that's made off the backs of these workers, the injustice and the stupidity of it.
2: Some of that sugar ends up on our breakfast table. If people could see at what price they put sugar in their coffee, they would be absolutely horrified. The bitter
4: work behind sugar on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff.
0: This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and you know, we've got a familiar friend for today's Manu Minute, the Majiro. I've got them in my yard. Here's University of Hawaii Hilo Professor Patrick Hart.
2: The warbling wide eye, or Majiro, is a non native bird that was first introduced to Hawaii from Japan in 1929. It is now the most common bird in all of Hawaii, occurring just about everywhere. They're green and gray with a very distinctive white ring around their eyes, and they're only about four inches tall. So small, they're more often heard than seen. White eyes are known as generalists. They eat a variety of food, such as insects, fruit, and nectar. They're considered competitors when they live in the same forests as our native birds. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at
4: the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org.
0: March marks the second anniversary of the start of the COVID pandemic, and if there's one thing that has tested us over the last two years or that was tested was our resilience, whether we could come back as individuals, as communities, as a state from one of the lowest points in recent history. Resilience is also the focus of a current research project at the University of Hawaii at Manoa it's called Holu Kanaka Hawaii, Native Hawaiian Daily Pathways to Resilience. It aims to find out what gives Native Hawaiians strength in challenging times. And the researchers hope the data will be used to support the ongoing revitalization of the culture. Jan Holga is the UH postdoc student leading the study. He spoke with the conversations, Russell Subiano.
6: What led to your interest in this? Is there something special about native Hawaiian resilience? So I'm originally from Germany. And I started my research. I started my research in Switzerland.
7: This is where I did my PhD. And then I had like a postdoc in Canada. And in Canada was like the first time where I was, where I got to know a different side of history. And also like with the First Nations there. And and I just read about different uh, nations. And somehow I got stuck with native Hawaiians. I read about it and it was a, a feeling, a call. I don't know. You know, this aloha. It's it's here, This this aloha that like, spoke to me like w- in the same context with children. And then with hearing about the history of Native Hawaiians, when like the the colonists came and they welcomed them with their aloha spirit. And this was used against them. I don't know this, and I, I always get very emotional talking about this. Uh, so I, it was it was a was a feeling that brought me here to to use my skills that I've
6: learned and come here and be of service. When we're talking about resilience, you mm-hmm. know, Native Hawaiian resilience, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by resilience? Do you see a level of resilience in our in our culture and our history? So basically, when I think about resilience, what I've learned so far, it's, it's usually
7: about when you when you face with a challenge that you do not hit rock bottom. So that's actually the definition of resilience: is okay, you confront with a stressor, with a challenge, with an adversity, but somehow you make it. Somehow you're able to keep up your well being. You are able to provide for your family, to do your job, to, you know, go on with life, no matter how hard it is. But actually that's, that's not the whole story. So there's also research that says that, okay, it's kind of like more recovery. So you experience something traumatic and you go all the way down, but you're able to get back up. But I think here it's also, it's, and and a lot of of times people when they talk about resilience is about a bouncing back. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's more of a bouncing forward because something has led to this experience, Some, something has happened. And usually when we talk about resilience, it's in a context of something that's life-changing. So there is actually no way back. So you need to bounce forward. You kind of like have to change things in your life that can regain your well-being. And, and so this is one side of resilience. The other side, the most important side is, and this is maybe like a contrast to Western resilience perspective and more indigenous or native Hawaiian resilience perspectives, is that from a Western perspective, we usually put the responsibility for resilience on the person, on the individual. So it's more or less like, it's your responsibility. You have to be strong. You know, you have to be optimistic, hopeful, all the right things in place. And if you cannot make it, well, it's up to you. So, and this is where more Native Hawaiian culture comes in, is more like the environment. What can the environment do for you? And especially here, this. The value of the community that I experience here that is so strong. And and it's not only about like being a part of a helpful, healthy community that's there for you when you're in trouble, but it's also more on like, okay, what's the healthcare system, the country where you live, you know, financial aid systems, all of this, like all those different things, puzzles of your environment that make up your resilience. So and then there are also things that are in your daily life. And this is kind of what this project focuses on, things in your daily life that give you some kind of like this preparedness, basic resilience.
6: I really like that idea of not just bouncing back, but bouncing forward. Yeah. When I think about just recent history, there was that period of time around statehood where it was very shameful to be Hawaiian. It was very shameful to speak mm-hmm. Hawaiian or, or to dance hula or do things that were traditionally Hawaiian. And so a lot of a lot of our traditions and our language got repressed for a while, almost lost to some extent. And then there's this accounting of a, of a Hawaiian Renaissance in the '70s that has kind of continued to blossom even to now. We have Hawaiian immersion schools that are bringing the language back, bringing the traditions back. And so I see yeah, this yeah. idea of not just bouncing back to where we were, but bouncing forward and and, and continuing not just to bring the culture back, but to grow the the culture in in the next generations. I I think that's really, really a a great way to look at it. And from what I've read about your study, it takes into account personal stories of resilience, Mm -hmm. how ancestors have dealt with their Mm generational challenges, and Native Hawaiian values that are essential Mm -hmm. for resilience. Can you elaborate Mm -hmm. on these parts of your study? Yes. So the first part, like personal stories of resilience,
7: so, this is the basic resilience question we usually ask. Let's say also from a Western perspective, here, you know, so, I mean, I know I come here with my more or less Western mindset, and I'm really humble and open here to, as you said, to learn the culture. I, I'm taking courses on native Hawaiian health and well being at UHWO. I've been to, the, to a lo'i uh, to a Carlo patch last weekend with my family. And so this Western perspective usually asks you, okay, if you have experienced something challenging in your past, in your life, what has helped you? So this is like the personal stories of resilience. And the part of this is also like in the current life. Okay, what are the challenges you are currently experiencing? What gives you hardships in your daily life? And what is in your daily life that actually helps you dealing with it? We already had some interviews. And I remember this one, one guy, it was so beautiful. He said, what helps him a lot is seeing the world through children's eyes, you know as, as adults we're usually so much up here in our heads and don't get away from it and all, we just see the bad things and he said talking with children about just about how they see things in life gives them like an uplift he's like hey life mustn't be so heavy and maybe I, ha- I can get a different perspective of how on how my life is and so this was really beautiful and this is how the project was initially planned and then being here and kind of like immersing myself in the local culture Showed me how much value native Hawaiians have for their ancestors, and they want to know what their ancestors did, how they, they, let's say, generally did things during their lifetimes. And because of what you said, because of the the history of Native Hawaiians, they have been challenged with so much, with so many adversities. So, so the question is: See, what can we learn? What have they done to, let's say, survive all this? And so that Native Hawaiians are still here today. How have they been able to deal with all this oppression, with taking away their culture, you know, being allowed to talk their language? Yeah. Um, so, you know, all this, you know, so how, what, what has helped them? Native Hawaiians, I, I, what I've heard so far in the interviews, i always so hopeful about the future. Things will get better. And then combined with valuing hard work and striving for excellence. So there's all like core Native Hawaiian. It tells me, okay, they're they going to, they're going to work hard. They make this room. They make things happen. Like you said, already what has happened since the 60s and 70s, yeah. so yeah. much work has put into it and so much effort, you know, so you see it's so very important, I think, values that help them to be resilient.
6: In the research that you've done so far, what kind of patterns or what kind of trends are you seeing? And what mm-hmm. do you hope to do with the results of the yeah. study? Is it something that other cultures can learn from when it mm-hmm. comes to being more resilient? That's a good
7: question. So I I can say one challenge a lot of people talked about. So I've talked to different people. I've talked to people who were born and raised here and lived their whole life here. I've talked to people who've gone somewhere else and came back. And especially for the people who, who did go somewhere else and came back or who lived on the mainland for a while, for them, it was challenging to get into the community. So this was like what I heard a lot. It's like this being accepted by native Hawaiians. If you move to a new place, or you've lived here, move away and come back, and all of a sudden you're not accepted anymore. So this is what I what I heard more often. And when it, when it comes to the resource side is, it's like kuleana, especially kuleana when it's connected to the community, to others. From a Western perspective, we usually talk about individualism and collectivism. So individualism means we, we take a lot of value in ourselves, you know, we value yeah. all much, and, and we're very much concentrated of, of raising our own well-being. And I think this is something where we can learn a lot here from is not putting the focus on ourselves but on others you know so it just gives a whole different story because you can give up on yourself when you're in a bad time you know you can you criticize yourself and you 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 uh, question your own meaning in life but i think if you do something for others and that and we can learn and we know that from from like from other cultures like buddhism buddhists say we will have the highest happiness if you of service to others and not to yourself. I have to say, um, interestingly, in the interviews, nobody so far talked about connection to the Aina or caring for the Aina. So that was interesting. And I'm excited if this will come up. So far, the main age group we had so far was between like 18 and, and 25. We also had some in their 30s, 40s and one in their 70s. But there's something that makes me curious if this will will come more is, is um, caring for the INA, feeling connected to the INA. And, and I just remember you had one more question of what we will do with, with all the knowledge that we will collect. So, and this is, this is still in process. So I'm, I'm in contact with different organizations like local NGOs, small NGOs, or with OHA or KS. And I'm talking with them and I'm always asking people, hey, what do you think would be the best way that we can give this knowledge back to the community? So, but so to say, it will mainly be knowledge sharing, knowledge transfer. So far, it's not planned to have like real, I don't know, like interventions, but who knows? I want to give all this knowledge that's going to be gathered within this project just out there. And hopefully people in a place to really do, for example, practical applications with it can use this. How can more people participate in your study? Yeah, that would be awesome. So they can just give you a call or text me with my number, 808 four, three, nine, four, nine, seven, nine. Or they can email me. My email is J H O
6: L T G E at Hawaii.edu. And yeah, so that's how people can reach me. I really appreciate your time. And I, I really you. appreciate a, a very interesting discussion. Thank you so much for your time.
0: That was UH postdoc student Jan Holga talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about a study on Native Hawaiian Resilience. If you'd like to participate by sharing your story of resilience, we'll have more information on the conversation page of our website, Hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, we do have to go now, but up tomorrow, we hope to learn more about the warnings of potential cyber attacks as tensions with Russia ratchet up. Leave your feedback about the world events on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You want to listen back to something you heard? Find all of our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.